to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Reactive dog guardians. If your dog lunges, barks, generally loses it. The dogs, people, squirrels, skateboards, we have a free mini course just for you. Head over to agoodfeelingdogtraining.com, click free resource to get started on your reactive dog training journey today. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. We are really excited that you all are here. Um, Before I let my special guest introduce herself, I would like to just give a trigger warning for everyone listening. We are going to talk about aggression, um, harm to other animals from dogs, and behavioral euthanasia. So if you have experience with this, if this is a lot for you, this may not be the episode for you to listen to. Okay. So you've been warned. So Zoe, um, will you please introduce yourself for the listeners? I know some of, uh, some of my listeners already know you from your Pitbull stories episode, but for those who don't. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. So I'm Zoe. Um, we are wildly rescued on Instagram. Um, I have two rescue crazy, crazy pit mix thing mutts (laughs) named Marlene Charles um, I work in the rescue world. Um, I currently manage a shelter. I'm also managing a dog daycare, so I'm going kind of all over the place right now. <laughs> um, so um, I've been in that world for almost 10 years, which is crazy because I'm almost 30. <laughs> so yeah, 10 years of experience in that. Um, and yeah, we are just a fun, fun account to to follow if you guys want. Oh my God. I freaking love how your girls are just like so loud and they just give zero fucks. I'm like, this see, this is the dogs you deserve. And I think once everyone hears a little bit more of your story, I think that it's going to be especially sweet to celebrate like your life now. Right. And like the, the, the dynamic between the two of them. Okay. So let's just talk kind of broadly about behavioral euthanasia here. So, um, there was an Instagram account or a social media account. I don't even know who it was, but she ended up having to euthanize her dog because of aggression towards her child. And there were a lot of opinions, right. On on both sides. And I, I feel like Zoe did such a a delicate job of explaining your perspective and your side and your take on things. So I'm not sure we really need to like dive into too much of those details, but I think it's important for everyone listening to understand that while we want every dog to live a happy, fulfilled life, and that's always the goal, that isn't always the reality. Mm -hmm. And sometimes dogs have histories prior experience, genetic combinations that do not lend themselves to them being safe in the community. So um, do you want to share just a little bit about some of the things you have experienced as an individual when it comes to aggression in dogs? Yeah. I mean, in the shelter world, mostly, um, I mean, I used to be a save them all person when I started, and I was very naive to the fact that that was something, I think that's something that's so portrayed well in media and by like Best Friends Animal Society and all these other places that are kind of sanctuaries. Um, But you don't really see it until you're in it. 
um, and what the effects is happening. And I think since that push now, especially, I think it was California is becoming like a no-kill state um, and all that stuff, which is honestly awesome, but it's, there's, I think, two sides. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. Um, so just seeing the side, I think, from sheltering and learning in the shelter system that that is not something, especially for the community. I mean, I say this all the time. I think the community is something that people don't think about. I think they see the dog and they want to save the dog and they think this dog is gonna just find the magical person to make them better. Um, but they don't think about the people living next door to that dog that might fall into the wrong hands of someone, if that makes sense. Or, I mean, I just, I've seen it so many times where people have sent their dogs to a boarding train and they come back 10 times worse and they end up in a shelter. Like it just, it just happens. Um, so, I mean, I think in the shelter world, especially it's, it's been, it's been very interesting working in a place where we have helped a lot of people with behavioral euthanasia and educating and our trainers really believe like, hey, genetics, sometimes it just, it happens. And I don't want to be the person that's like, let's euthanize all the dogs. <laughs> I think it's a conversation that definitely needs to happen because there are very few people that want a dog that has 10 bites on them or has killed another animal. Like that's a big responsibility to take on. So yeah, and it's it's a really heavy burden that I don't think that we give enough compassion and weight into like what's happening in the human world too. While I love rescue and I love all of the efforts on so many of, by so many of the rescues that are near me, but you know, putting the dog above the human's needs is not the proper equation, yeah. right? And like you know, a dog who is truly dangerous, you and I both have personal experience with this, unfortunately, right? And you don't really know it until you live it. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the spectrum here. So of course, we don't want to be the person like euthanize all the dogs, like that's fucking terrible. Of yeah. course, you don't want to do that. But I think that it's important for those of you listening to understand like, some of the things that are going to stack up and happen that lead to the eventual euthanasia decision, right? Because this doesn't happen super fast, but I think that we have to be honest about the dog's history, right? Does the dog have a history of aggression? How severe is the aggression? Is the dog just biting and letting go? Is the dog biting and holding on? Like, what is the damage? And I think when we look at the spectrum of aggression, when we're talking about dogs who are biting, holding on, shaking, doing serious damage, that's when I think we have to be honest about, you know, thinking through, can we safely manage this dog its entire lifetime and prevent harm to the dog itself and everything around that dog? Yeah, because I think two people, like we use the Ian Dunbar bite scale a lot. And though that's not like 100% foolproof all the time, like it's just, it's nice to put it in a perspective, I think sometimes. Um, and just see the range of like one puncture versus, oh, this dog ripped half of your arm off, <laughs> which if a dog does that, their bite inhibition and their ability to have that bite inhibition is no, not, it's out the window. Like that can't really be trained. I mean, it could, I don't know. I'm not a dog trainer, it but it can't. It can't. <laughs> and that's one of those things that like, 
bite inhibition for everyone, just to kind of clarify what that means is that the dog is aware enough of the force of their bite that even if they're pushed to, to biting, they're not biting and doing like serious harm. So maybe there's a puncture wound, maybe there's some bleeding, but they're not like ripping a chunk out of something. Right. And unfortunately, the best that I understand it at this point, based on all of the research is that, yeah, dogs either have it or they don't. Yeah. And when we understand that a dog doesn't, right. And we understand that a dog could push to a point of not just acting aggressively, but doing serious harm to people, dogs, other animals. We can't take that lightly. Right. And I know that that's something in the shelter world that, you know, you guys take a lot of information. Sometimes you don't always know, but to the best of your ability, you're trying to gather that information so that you can act accordingly. Yeah. And some places too are not the best at disclosing that, that, uh, that information. And I've been lucky enough to work places that for the most part have, I mean, there's been some times where I'm like, why, why, why do we, and it's just cause like either they have a connection with the dog or the volunteers love the dog, which like is fine. But I think looking at the whole picture is just such a big thing. And a lot of people don't do that, especially in rescue. They're just like, oh, we'll get them in a house with no dogs, no cats, no kids. One person that lives alone in the middle of nowhere and crows can't even fly over your house. And you can only walk them at 5 a.m. Like that's when it kind of starts to me going like, okay, well, <laughs> we should probably start looking at maybe not the best or the, the, the final option for this dog, um, which would be euthanasia. So, And I think that, you know, I think we have to have an honest conversation about the limits of behavior modification and training. Yes. Yes. Right. Because, you know, I consult on I've consulted on thousands of aggression cases, right? And thankfully, very few of them came to a point of euthanasia. But, you know, there's a lot that we can do to modify, but there are some things that we cannot change about a dog. We can't change if they don't have bite inhibition. We can't change if they had a shitty life or shitty breeding, right? And like, those are things that I think are really hard for us as humans to digest, right? Because I think that like, a lot of the motivation for the same save them all movement is that like we get to sleep good at the end of the night. Yeah. But is that really fair to the dog? And is that really fair to the community? I would say no, <laughs> it's not. And I would too. Right. And I think that, you know, placing dangerous dogs in homes and then shaming owners is a really huge problem. I see it a lot and I know, right. Like, Please, people who are listening, I'm not trying to like throw rescue groups under the bus because I know y'all are doing amazing work, but it does happen, right? Mm -hmm. Where rescues are like, yeah, you know, they kind of disregard prior history of aggression and blame it on people instead oh, of, right, right. Instead of really looking at how could we help the dog is help possible. And if it isn't, then just like bouncing this dog back around probably isn't the best option. Well, it's interesting too, because a lot of rescues that place these dogs won't even take their animals back or they will kind of shame and guilt trip the people. I mean, I can think, I'm not going to name names, but I can think of a, a specific situation at the shelter I managed where they basically, this dog bit their neighbor out of nowhere, unprovoked. Um, and they, had to be on like bike quarantine for 10 days. And then they said, 
uh, when she called the shelter, like, hey, I don't really feel comfortable with this anymore. They were like, well, he's going to be very sad here if you bring him back for quarantine. And basically guilt tripped this lady into keeping this dog for 10 days and then wouldn't take the, it back because it was after their return policy ended. So <laughs> it's just like those, I'm, I'm not saying every shelter does this, but a lot of them do. Um, and that's kind of the love I have a love hate with shelters and I work it I work in them <laughs> like <laughs> um, I think there are amazing rescues and shelters doing amazing work out there but I also think there are the ones that are kind of dragging it down and that's why a lot of you see breeding coming up so much is in, right nowadays because people get some very crappy dogs from shelters <laughs> uh, yeah and I think that you know I think for everyone listening, some red flags would be if the shelter or the rescue organization has made up a big story about mm -hmm. how it's people's fault that the dog has acted aggressively multiple times and then like tries to build you up that you're going to be the savior and you can fix everything about the dog. It's a big red flag because yeah. while there is a lot we can do with behavior modification and management and environment, <laughs> there are limits. And when we're talking about dogs that could be potentially dangerous, like, you know, that that's when the euthanasia conversation comes up. So, Zoe, I want to get a little personal because I know that, you know, we both have um, a history with behavioral euthanasia. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the events that led to the eventual euthanasia? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm pretty open now about this on my, in my page, but uh uh, I had a dog named Angel. She was for seven years. So she was almost 10 when she was killed by my newly adopted dog, Atticus. Um, he had shown no prior aggression towards her. He did show a little bit of aggression towards my friend's bigger dog that was also male, which I mean, okay, it was just like a snap and like whatever. They walked away and we took them on a walk. They were fine. Um, and then... Um, uh, he did get attacked by an off-leash dog once. Um, and that was before I even had adopted him. I was fostering him at the time because he was on a court case hold from the job, my, the shelter I worked at, um, which he lived with kids, other dogs, cats, so no issues. Um, uh, and then one day, um, I mean, I had them, I had them too. It was like nine months, I think I had him. Um, and then one day- How old day, was he? he? What? How old was he? He was four. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we knew a little bit about his backstory. He like lived with the family. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Knew about his backstory. They just were hoarding and uh, they hoarded and then kept him in a crate for a lot of the day um, and would leave him for extended periods of time and then would just come back like, oh, huh. <laughs> um, but we knew his family, knew his history. He was in playgroups at work. Like there was nothing in my mind that I would have said yeah, so there was like no red flags in his history, um, besides the fact that they didn't treat him very well, but everything in the shelter, all the processes we went through, he was a solid dog. Um, and I mean, I had him at home with Angel, they cuddled, they they laid around together, never saw any resource, they shared toys, they shared bones. Um, and in my life, honestly, like, I mean, I think a lot of people do this, I left them alone. I did. And that's something I still to this day beat myself up over, but I never would have done it if I saw those, any type of like issue that he had with her. 
Like he would whine if I would put her in a different room, he would sit by the door and whine. So <laughs> in my mind, I thought it was okay. And uh, I had come home and uh, from work one day and he killed her. Uh, it was, we still don't know what happened. Um, he had bit the back of her leg, um, basically to the point where it was shredded open and she basically bled to death. Um, so, I mean, I've never seen him snap like that. There was no precursor. And I've worked with animals for my whole life. So if there, I was going to see a precursor to it, I would have, I think I would have, I would have been able to, um, so it just was one of those things where, yeah, I could have separated them, but I mean, do you know how many people don't separate their animals and they were together for months and months and months and months and they never had an issue. Do I separate my animals now? Yes. Do what I have to with Marley and Charlie? No, there's no, yeah, probably not. But it's to that point now that I'm like too scared to leave them alone together. But also like, I would have never guessed it would have happened. So um, we ended up, I mean, I, he killed her in a way that if I would have let him get adopted by someone else with no animals, if he would have gotten out and done that to another animal again, I could not have lived with myself. So I, I mean, I made the decision and with the support of the shelter and everything like to, to we all made that decision to euthanize him because that is not, it's not safe even if it was me leaving them alone, like I've left dogs alone before and they've gotten into like a little tiff over like a ball that was under the couch that I didn't see or something like that. And there were no resources let out, left out or anything. Cause I mean, I was at least smart enough to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like, and it's never been to the point of a dog killing another dog. It's always been like a little snip or something. Um, so, I mean, that's a, you can, people say that's my fault and, oh, you killed Atticus and you killed your own dog. And that's going along with the shaming stuff again, which, I mean, I've been through in my own time. Cause I'm like, at first I was like really upset about it. And now I'm everyone. I'm like, fuck off. Like <laughs> basically, oh, um, but like, I mean, you can, people are going to say what they want to say about the situation, but for real, like they were not he was not a dog that I would have ever expected to do that so like you know once that happens like once we know that we can't negate that right like that is a lot of trauma home and like see that literal image right and like not only the trauma of like seeing Angel basically bleed out, but also seeing Atticus probably just being like in the moment now, like, hey, how are you? Welcome back. Totally happy. Like totally like, I know my roommate put him, put him in the backyard and I went to go, that's the first thing I did. I was like, oh my God, Angel's dead. But I went to go check on him because I was so like, ah! and I was trying to run through, like, did he attack a cat? And Angel was like protecting him, like the cat. Like there were so many things going through my mind. And like, he just ran up to me and like sat down and was like, hi, like, I'm so happy you're home. So I'm like, and I even remember the animal control officer coming to get him from my house. And he was like scared. And I was like, he's a nice dog. Like, yeah, you don't have to be scared of him. <laughs> so it's just one of those weird things that like you, you don't, no, I think it's, I think sometimes you can see it coming. Like if I would have known he had any sort of aggression with dogs, there was no way I would have left them all together. But 
you're doing the best with the information that you have, right? Yeah. I think that, so I'll share just a little bit about my story. So it's interesting because our timeline was exactly the same, nine months, yeah. right? And it's interesting, right? Because like in that timeline, you really get to know the dog, but then you get to see like the extent. And unfortunately it was very dire circumstances in Angel's case, but we fostered an American Pitbull Terrier called Hilo. He was rescued from a chain. He pretty much lived on a chain from like eight weeks old until like two years old. A pit bull in Colorado. This dog like survived two winters on a chain outside. Like it's remarkable that he was even really alive. And I had two dogs at the time, one of which could be dog selective slash dog aggressive. So we took a lot of time like managing dogs and doing intros and um, I had a big support network, right? I was, I had a ton of trainers on my, my side. The rescue group was on my side and it started off really good, right? Like we took it slow and all the dogs got along and my husband and I are like, oh my God, like, did we do this? Right? Like, are we saviors? Did we save this dog? You know, it's like, it's a weird ego trip kind of, right? When you're like, you feel like, oh my God, we did it. And then slowly but surely things started to go downhill. Um, there was a fight between Hilo and Sunny that thankfully there was no physical damage to anyone. It was broken up. We were able to co peacefully coexist. We're like, okay, you know, maybe it's just an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. And then, um, there was another fight. Uh, both dogs were injured. I was injured. And from that point on, the boys couldn't even see each other without trying to just go for each other. And, you know, we managed, we kept the house separate. We used management. We did that for months. And I got to tell you that that was the most exhausting low point in my entire life. It is very exhausting to live in a household where dogs cannot be loose together. And I know that a lot of people do it. And I know that a lot of people are successful with it. But for us, like my husband and I, we travel, we go places, we, we need to take all of the dogs, right? Like management, formal management wasn't something we really were interested in. And then, you know, there was incident after incident, right? There was a resource guarding incident over a toy when Hilo attacked Tiva. Um, so at this point, there have been fights between all of the dogs. And then he bit me. He bit my husband mm -hmm. and we finally had to make the decision that like this dog has literally put holes in every family member in this house. And while he means well, it, it's not working, you know, and like to give everyone some perspective about all of the efforts we exhausted nine months, he worked with me, like probably half a dozen other trainers. Like, like I said, there was a giant support team here. It wasn't just me. I had a ton of support. And, you know, by the time it came down to it, we made the right call, right? We loved him. We talked to an animal communicator and he told me that he wished that it could just be me and him. And like, as heartbreaking as that is, that wasn't the truth, right? And we, we evaluated, could he be rehomed? No, he had bitten two people at this point, two other dogs, right? Like, you know- one of the most qualified people he could have been with at the time, like he was. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like the day we euthanized him, the rescue was amazing. They rallied, they, they, they got this vet to come to the house so it could be as peaceful as possible. And of course, like I got some ice cream and all this stuff. And 
probably a minute before he was euthanized, he bit me over ice cream. And, you know, as heartbreaking as it was, it was reassuring for me that I made the right call. You know, that, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that like he told the animal communicator, he saw red and he did like, he literally left his body and primal instincts, instincts took over and it wasn't predictable enough to manage or train through. Right. And like, I think that the shaming on the internet is such a snap judgment mm-hmm. from I think- people who have had easy fucking dogs who have no concept of what like it is really like to live with an aggressive dog. People that love blocky headed dogs too though. Like I got more hate from people that owned pit bull, pit bull types than any other, which is interesting. Um, and I always, that's something I've been thought about a lot is like the pit bull advocates that are mostly like save them all were like, how could you dare, could, how dare you? And a lot of people didn't know either. Like Atticus, the Atticus's people paid money for him. Like he was from a bull, like an XL bully breeder that like one of the ones that I, I don't really support, but like, he was like a well-bred as well-bred as an XL bully could come, you know? <laughs> So um, I think just the hate that people get for it and like the immediate response that people just want to blame, especially in situations like ours, like how, how could you not rehome him just with no other dogs? Maybe he wouldn't have- That been- is a unicorn. That home doesn't exist, people. And yeah. if that home did exist, they probably don't want a dog who's a liability. Yeah. Like who wants a dog that has bitten two people, three people, someone twice and an extra person plus a bunch of like I just and I think that's the Atticus thing too is like he must have snapped and saw red like I think that that was something like that he just something must have happened between them or like Angel did like kind of she was growling or play so maybe he took that wrong once and just boom it was over so well and I think that there's this fallacy of like sanctuary yeah. Right. Like, okay, well, what if they just live in like, you know, a sanctuary or they live in a boarding facility? And like, that's something that like we considered for Hilo, but Hilo was in boarding before he came to us and he was deteriorating. He was not yeah. doing well. He wasn't eating. He was overly stressed. And like, that is not a sustainable solution so that people can get out of the difficult decision that needs to be made. Well, yeah. And then sometimes those dogs are in there like that just sit there that no one can touch or only one person can touch or one person can take on a walk. Um, And then they have to sit in a kennel for the five other days that they're, the person's not working or whatever it is. And that's quality of life. Like that's not okay for me, at least I would never want my dogs to sit in a kennel and get out once every couple days. Like that does not seem like a life and be drugged on top of that. Like just most of the time, most of those dogs are on like a ton of behavior meds plus trazodone and like things to make them cope with the little tiny space that they're living in. So. Right. And like, you know, I think that there are some exceptions to the sanctuary thing. I don't want to say that there aren't, but I think by and large sanctuary is not this like like super sustainable option for people with dogs who have a serious history of aggression. Mm -hmm. Like it just isn't right. And I think that, 
you know, there is a trainer, Trish McMillan. I've heard her talk that she would be like the ideal person for an aggressive dog. She lives by herself. She lives on property. And she's like, I don't want that dog. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's important, right? Like it's easy to shame people without looking at all of the efforts that they have exhausted to get to the the point of behavioral euthanasia. Right. And like, you know, I don't know of any behavioral euthanasias where I would have made a different decision. Right. I think that there's a lot of people who think that like, you know, dogs who are doing normal dog stuff are getting euthanized. But like from where I sit in my experience, that is not the case. Right. We're not just euthanizing dogs who could safely be other places. Right. We're talking about dogs that we have exhausted every single effort for. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I think, a history too. I think a lot of people take the history for granted, especially in rescue, because they want, they again, they want to put the blame on the person. But like, yeah, the stop, this dog still did kill three cats and bit your child's like arm for just walking by it, like that type of thing. And I'm not trying to like diminish people that like work with these dogs and like the specific like little tiny resource guarding like issues, bites, that type of thing. Because there are dogs that can't, they are workable. But when it gets to the point, I think, where you are questioning people who are qualified with their decision, then it kind of starts to be kind of just bullshit that I don't listen to anymore. <laughs> right? And I think that for those of you who are listening, who have had to make the behavioral euthana- euthanasia decision, um, one, we... Right. You're supported. You're understood. And I think that, you know, we have to support and build each other up and understand that, especially on Instagram, right? Like we do not know every single detail of every single moment, right? Mm -hmm. And you making a snap, like shitty comment or sending a bunch of hate direct messages is bad for dogs in the dog community at large. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that was something that was just so evident, like with what happened with the the influencer who had to euthanize her dog is that like, man, people were mean. Yeah. Oh, they were mean. Sending them like death threats, which like, if you really watched their video, like they, they, okay, they might've not done everything, but they tried to contact some place to rehome a reputable, like a humane society. They, the dog had issues for a long time. It's not like this was his first issue could they have managed him with the child better probably but a lot of people don't realize too is a lot of dog owners are not dog instagram owners like they are not like the people that we all follow on instagram that are training and doing this and know everything about dog behavior like the average dog owner does not know (laughs) the difference between like a hard stare and like a whale eye or like like that type of thing like there's yes there's such like I think an indifference of a difference of level of education that we could be doing instead of just going well they don't know what they're doing when they knew that dog for nine years right yeah no and you bring up such a good point right because like you know and most of the people listening you all are like the 99th percentile of dog guardians because you're listening to us right now but like that, that isn't the norm. And not that that makes the normal dog guardian bad. It just makes them less equipped to be successful with a dog who is capable of causing serious harm to other beings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something too that like, 
as a professional, right? Like I probably was the most qualified person to foster Hilo. I probably was, right? I had a ton of experience with aggression. I had a huge support network. We made a lot of progress with a lot of behavior modification, but we have to talk about the emotional toll that happens to people. Mm-hmm. You know, the emotional toll that it put on me and my husband, the emotional toll it put on the other two dogs that I had agreed and committed to giving a good life before we brought this other dog in, right? It bled into my work. It bled into my relationships with my friends and family. Like it, it is truly the most exhausted I have ever felt in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Leaving the house and thinking to myself, were all the doors closed? Were all the BB gates closed? Was the X pen up? making sure that there are three layers of management because I didn't want to come home to what you so tragically had to come home to. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, I human and that they make those mistakes. Sometimes they forget to shut a door and it doesn't make them a bad person or a shitty dog owner. It happens like just in regular life. Like I left the back gate open the other day and Marley Charlie were running down the street. Like, wee. <laughs> That doesn't make me a shitty dog owner. <laughs> right, right. We're all we're all doing our best, right? Like we're all doing our best to step up for our dogs. But I think that when we shame people, I think that it prevents people from like really thoughtfully deciding could behavioral euthanasia be the option here? Mm-hmm. And sometimes because of that shame, people don't make the euthanasia call maybe in the timeline that would have prevented a really dire situation from happening. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, that's where we were at with Hilo. I was like, listen, it is only going to get worse. It has continued to escalate all of us. Right. Like I almost lost a finger. I have permanent scars in my hand. You know, it's like, it's not going to get better. And the risk is just too great. Right. And like, some of these dogs have lived really shitty lives and the most compassionate thing we can do is set them free from their physical being. And, you know, I don't want to get like, you know, too spiritual on y'all, but I think that souls live on, right? Just because they're not in their physical body doesn't mean we haven't given their soul a chance to go find some other existence in which they don't have to experience the turmoil. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, you know, People, you deserve that too. If you've been living with an aggressive dog and managing that dog for years, you know, there's no one right answer. There's no one right answer. But what I want to do is give you permission to make the right decision for you and for your dog. And that's something I didn't, I didn't, I don't want to say I love doing owner euthanasias because I was a euthanasia tech as well. So I kind of seen all sides of it, but like seeing the person, like, a lot of people just get relief. They knew that they did everything for this dog. They knew that they, they either did it at the right time, something bad happened and they made the right call or they were doing it preemptively and like making sure it didn't get to a point where the dog killed someone or hurt something very direly. Like, and just that relief that they got from knowing that they don't have to have that animal in their life anymore the dog can't make that decision for them like they have to and I think that's one of the bravest things that people can do as a dog owner of an aggressive dog if it's truly coming to the point where you cannot manage anymore I think humanely euthanizing is something that the dog doesn't have to be on level 100 all the time anymore and that's something I like like explaining to people like 
a lot of times people will try to be like, well, like I could have done this or this, but like, yeah, you could have, but also the dog, you can't, you just said to me, you couldn't even walk the dog outside during the day. Like you had to wake up at 2 a.m. to walk this dog and it still would be anxious. Like that's not a way to live. And you were probably the best thing. And do you want the dog to go into a shelter and deteriorate? Or do you want to make this brave decision for this animal? It's one thing that I would kind of juggle with people. And it's, it's such a hard, hard conversation to have because a lot of people don't want to hear it. But if you like educate and talk and show examples and compassion, like people start going like, you know, you're kind of right. And I'm not saying like, <laughs> I keep talking about this. Like, I'm not saying kill all the dogs that are bad. But like, <laughs> I don't want to be that person. I don't want to advocate for, for dogs to be euthanized. But I think it is something as humans, like we are humans, we need to take responsibility over. Like dogs don't run the world. <laughs> so. <laughs> and I love your choice of word because it is, it is very brave to make the right call for the dog right? And for yourself, right? I remember after Hilo was euthanized, we could finally have toys on the ground again. I mean, it had yeah. been nine months in our house since toys had been down. And Tiva and Sunny just played and I just sobbed. And it wasn't because I was sad about Hilo. I was just joyed that my dogs could just play with toys again. Yeah. Right? Just like that normal baseline, right? Yeah. And I think that something else that is an important piece to this conversation is that there is a never ending epidemic of dogs who need sheltering to be rehomed, to be adopted out, right? Yeah. Like, unfortunately that's going nowhere. That's just part of our, 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 a lot of societies, right? The U S in particular, but I know a lot of other countries are facing the same thing that there are also, you know, a fixed amount of resources. Mm-hmm. It's, it sucks. I hate having to be this Debbie Downer and have to talk about this, but it is important that if there is limited resources, those resources, in my humble opinion, should be allocated to dogs who can safely live in homes with average dog guardians who don't need to be behavior experts. I completely agree. Completely agree. Because there are also dogs that are getting murdered in the world, euthanized at shelters for like heartworm, like the six month old lab or the 13 year old chihuahua that's super nice and it has one thing wrong with it. And if, if it was somewhere else, like it could have been been adopted out or saved or rescued, but there are so many places that are taking these dogs and trying. And then it's just causing other dogs to die, basically <laughs> be euthanized. Um, it, like if you look at Texas, they were euthanizing dogs for kennel cough and heartworm. When we could be transferring some of those dogs or doing something, I'm not saying that's the best best idea, but like there would be space if save them all wasn't such a big thing in this country. Which, yeah, no, and that's heavy, right? That's heavy to unpack, like the details of that. I want to just talk really quickly about something else that I think is important because there is a lot of perpetuating of this false understanding that like we can fix and rehab dogs. Mm-hmm. we can't no we can't fix all of them and in fact we're not fixing dogs ever we're just modifying behavior and changing environments so that they can be successful and i think that unfortunately there's a lot of trainers who will claim that they can take the dog they can rehab any dog but i want you all to know that while that may work in the short term there will always be fallout mm-hmm. 
right? Like, you know, especially dogs who have been trained with highly aversive punishment, you will see a suppression of behavior, but that doesn't mean that the aggression has gone away. And unfortunately, in a lot of those circumstances, when the dog does finally act aggressively, it is escalated because of the use of aversive punishment. Right. And like, you know, I don't think we need to have a whole conversation about, you know, types of training, but I want to be clear that if a trainer tells you they can rehab or fix your aggressive dog who has a long history of putting holes in people and other dogs, they are lying. You're going to be out a lot of money and you're probably still going to have to make a really brutal call at the end. And I say that because I love you all and I don't want you to fall victim to that. I wish it wasn't a reality, but sadly I have worked with clients who did go that route only to, um, have really dire fallout. Yeah. yeah. It happened in the show, like people that have surrendered their dogs for biting or just general aggression, uh, in the shelter room too. Like it happens all the time. Um, and you would the kind of to get like the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The unifying thing that you'll see is like, oh, I took it to a color board and train for two weeks. And then I had him for three more months and then like, yep, nope. Then he bit me, um, which is very sad. And it is right. And they prey upon people's dire circumstances, right? <laughs> you know, not that they all are malicious and terrible, but to be clear, <laughs> aversive punishment may work in the short term, but it is not going to fix or rehabilitate dogs who are truly aggressive, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, I just wanted to throw that in there in there as a precursor because I know that, you know, some people find themselves in the situation like, okay, this is our last ditch effort and it ends up just making things worse and then they're out thousands of dollars. So, you know, there's no magic fairy dust. If there was, we wouldn't even have to have this conversation at all. Yeah, we wouldn't. <laughs> Everything would be fixed. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Zoe, do you have any final th- thoughts on behavioral euthanasia? I mean, my what I pretty much tell anyone is just that it, it's probably going to be one of the hardest things you ever have to do. Um, but also one of the bravest and best things that you can do for yourself, your community. I think people, again, I think people forget about the community. Like you are not just yourself in this world. You live in a community with people, with dogs, especially like, I mean, Denver, Portland, such dog friendly areas. Like if I would have been like, no, I'll just keep Atticus. I'll just keep Atticus. And I would be on edge walking him around just with all the off leash dogs, with all the dog parks, everything. 24 seven and he would be too. Um, so I think it's one of the, I think it's self selfless. And I think, um, people need to find their support systems and have these conversations. Um, and I think you should talk to someone that has gone through behavioral euthanasia before just making that snap decision. Um, I also want to say there's a support group on Facebook called losing Lulu. I don't know if you know of it. Yes. Yes. That was one of the saving graces for me because they do not judge. You can just tell your story and mem- like you can share memories and no one will judge you. But like you, I wish we could just all be like that <laughs> with this topic. Yeah. So for those of you listening who have, have had to behaviorally euthanize an, an animal, check out that group. 
right? Like you are not alone, right? So um, can you just say that one more time for the listeners, the Facebook group? Yeah, so it's Losing Lulu. Losing Lulu. Um, they are awesome. They are totally... Oh my gosh, my dogs. Oh my gosh. You guys are so annoying. <laughs> They're annoying, but they're great. But yeah, losing, so losing Lulu is the Facebook group and they literally will kick you out if you make any judgment towards anyone else. And it's a super safe place for people to talk about their behavioral euthanasia. Beautiful. So, okay. And guys, we'll link that up in the show notes so that you can find it. So Zoe, um, for everyone listening, can you just give them your Instagram handle again so they can follow along on uh, <laughs> Marley's uh, grand adventures? Yeah, it's uh, wildly rescued amazing. And we'll link that up in the show notes so that people can find it too. And the guys, if you didn't already, uh, Zoe was on uh, Disorderly Dogs before. She did a Pitbull Stories episode. So we'll be sure to link that up in the show notes so that you could listen and learn more about her if you wanted to. Zoe, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for being such a beautiful force in the world and the Instagram community. Of course. Thank you for having me. Okay, hey guys. So I do not take promoting a product lightly. I really don't. I'm not going to tell you about a product I don't really believe and I'm not going to tell you about a product that doesn't have a fabulous team behind the product, but I was out of CBD for probably like two weeks. And then the lovely ladies at VetCS got me another bottle and I didn't really think about it. But after I started giving the dogs CBD again, Waylon's energy level greatly increased. I think that the CBD helps him feel so much better. So guys, this is not a gimmick. There is no bullshit. I believe in this product, and if you think that your dog could benefit from CBD, I highly suggest check out VetCS. You can learn more about CBD for dogs, cats, and horses at VetCS.com, and you can use code DISORDERLYDOGS for 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.